Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Uh, thank you very much for listening to Trial Levy, the literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies that we saw at the Trial on Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Trial Love Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Trial on Cinema. My name is Jason. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. My name is Cody. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I've got a good radio voice today because I'm sick. You sound good, man. You sound really good. Thank I like, you. like the throatiness you're bringing here. Mm. Uh, my name is Aaron. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. And I'm Harry. You can find me at Stucky Harry. Today we're going to be talking about the 1945 Edgar G. Ulmer film Detour, which played at the Trilon some weeks ago. I think it was at the Heights. Was it at the Heights? No, it was that's at, why it was we the didn't Heights Roadshow. Well, why are we doing this episode? I lied in our intro. Then. Uh, when Cody and I saw Moonrise this week, Barry was at the Heights for oh. the Trilon Roadshow. So it's the extended Trilon. I think Barry is at the Trilon, so wherever he travels is the, the Trilon. It's a movable picture show. It's the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. Basically, anywhere he is so connected he to the Trilon. He imbues a space with Trilon-ness, essentially. The um, subway on 4th Street? It's that's, trilon, a trilon. that's the Trilon, that's a trilon. now. Yeah. As long as Barry's there. His bathroom? It's Trilon. That's the Trilon. trilon. Can we get him here? Make this a Trilon? Uh, this would be a Trilon. We'll this would be a Trilon. Yeah. We could make this a Trilon. Classic uh, Trilon. The reason we're doing this movie is to not just patch holes in our release schedule, but because it's very, very, very short. And we're going to try to keep this episode very, very, very short, too. It's 69 minutes, says the Criterion nice. Blu-ray box. It does it? It does. It says 69 says 68, minutes. They're going to have to fight. They're going to have to have that one out. The girls are fighting. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, uh, do you have a plot summary for us, Aaron, Yeah, I do. Movie? I do. How long is the plot summary? The classic. Oh, my God. It takes up a whole screen. Summary. No, it's not. These are all my notes, so okay. it's not even that long. Wait. Cody's blowing his nose. Everybody wait. That's the stuff. Oh God, it's like it's like it's like juicy. we're in the the middle of it. Just sick season, just flu season. It's people bad. getting sick. We're all very tired. It's real bad out there. Some yeah, of we, us are hungover. I don't know if you could tell that we kind of sound like shit right now. Like all of us, we're kind of like yeah. yeah Jason, I guess we sound. Again, I, I just sound like. I mean, slightly, slightly. Jason, you sound the best of all of us. Thank you. Uh, I'm in the midst of uh, 60-hour work weeks and not sleeping very well. Uh, The recommendation, the only recommendation I have for today is self-care. Get new jobs, 2020. Get new jobs, 2020. Get new jobs, Always get new jobs. You're being exploited wherever you are, whomever you are. Probably. I don't know. Maybe you own a business and you're doing the exploiting. It's possible. Speaking of being exploited. Like a petty bourgeois. Anyway. uh, Coming in at a clean. Yes. One hour and nine minutes. Detour is a 1945 American noir film directed by Edgar J. Ulmer. Uh, Tom Neal and what? Edgar G. Ulmer. It's not J. It's G. Oh, fuck. No, he changed it. No, that's Edgar G. Ulmer. Uh, Tom Neal and Anne Savage star. Uh, It's an adaption of a Martin Goldsmith novel of the same name from 1939. Um, This movie has kind of uh, lived on with a certain degree of, like, notoriety. Uh, 
the the book really hasn't. Uh, supposedly it's out of print now, and you can't find it. But um, hmm. yeah, so uh, Tom Neal plays Al Roberts. He is a piano player who is hitchhiking across the continental United States to meet up with his girlfriend, uh, Sue Harvey, who is played by uh, Claudia Drake. Um, after she moved out to Hollywood to uh, seek a career in the movies. Um, Along the way, he is picked up by a man named Charles Haskell Jr., uh, who offers to give him a ride, says he's also going out to California. And uh, after an accident on the highway at night, Charles is killed uh, in, like, very weird and kind of unbelievable circumstances, and Al's worried that the police will think that he killed him to take his car, take his money. Um, And then later the next day, he picks up a hitchhiking woman named Vera, uh, and it turns out that she had ridden in the car with Charles, uh, prior uh, previously and she knows that al is not uh who he says he is as he is assuming charles's identity and she essentially starts to blackmail him and things spiral out of control from there how was that how, that was like a minute i probably. wasn't even timing it that was, was pretty good summary. well we promised we'd keep it short i think that's the episode today mm-hmm. jason th- you want to play us out i think the trick thank for you very me- much for listening to try love the trick for me is to to load the beginning of the summary, which as much like important details, like the here's the time, here's the director, here's like a few facts about the movie, and then that way no one notices that I just keep rambling on over and over again. I think you're getting so, better at it. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. That was yeah. better. Yeah. Uh, so this movie is uh, pretty classically noir, but with some elements that made me think of it differently than I think of a lot of other noir of its time. Um, can we talk about the main character and how he's just like kind of a sad sack <laughs> shit boy? Yeah, it's funny. Um, on the Wikipedia, shout outs again to Wikipedia, you know, the research that we do here on this illustrious podcast. Um, a, a reviewer whose name I can't recall said that this movie stars a man who can only pout and a woman who can only sneer. Yes. Uh, and I thought that was uh, a really, really good way perfect. to summarize both of these main characters. Uh, yeah. Um, Tom Neal. Tom like, Neal plays Al. Al Roberts is the character's name, right? Mm-hmm. And he's just a complete sad sack dope. Like beginning to end, the whole story Shaggy is dog. Mo- most of the most of the story is told through flashbacks uh, that he's having as he's stopped in a diner in Nevada, and um, he flashes back even when he like in the good times. He's... That was a really funny uh, and sort of um, deconstructive element of his characterization that I liked. Uh, as you were saying, is that even in the good times, he's still just sort of like this, <laughs> this fatalistic. He's just always eating shit off a plate, kind of like he's he's at the piano, he's making like beautiful music, and his uh, girls, you know, they're behind him singing at this nightclub. And then after the lights are out and they're closing up, he's just like, "Yeah, but I'll never make it anywhere. This place doesn't pay me enough for me to go anywhere bigger than here." And she's like trying to like get him cheered up and trying to make him like think differently about his about his situation and he literally like throughout 95 percent of the movie has the face that the dvd menu has which is a great face it in, is in his uh defense he 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 is sweating or like perspiring or like just generally wet through 90 percent of this movie just <laughs> just constantly just like he looks like he should just have a rag just wiping his face 24 7 he's a, such a good sweater no one is better than him maybe the rock the, yeah, the, in a different manner, though. That is like an overly aggressive, yeah. macho sweating. But like you're right, The Rock is very Sweating good. while you're doing data entry is the kind of sweating that The Rock yeah, does. He, <laughs> he, the main character of this movie pretty much is just like bad shit happens, and he's just like, oh, jeez. You know what I mean? And he's a real ah shucks character. Yeah. Very ah shucks. Things just happen to him. Like, And that's what yeah. I wanted to point out is uh, his character, and just before he, like Vera enters his life, he decides, like the thing that incites the whole plot is that he decides once his girl Sue leaves, whom I'm forgetting, um, the actress who plays her. It's uh, Claudia, Claudia Drake. Drake. Claudia Drake. 
uh, once she okay. leaves to L.A. from New York to become a big star that she knows she can be, uh, he is sort of sad sack left in the dust. And then one day just decides, I'm going to, like, break free. I'm going to finally take control of my own scenario. I'm going to, like, have some agency, exert some control over my life at age 31 or whatever he's supposed to be. Uh, and that's where everything goes to shit for. Right. And from then on, he just takes his lickings, like every single one that comes. Yeah, it was – it's sort of a – there's a um, there's a great, terrible, very film noir irony to it that it's like this is like the one right thing that this dude has done, right? Is that like he's he's sort of taken his lumps his whole life. He's uh, born in, in poverty. They make a reference to that a few times. He, he sort of scrapes his way up to this um, this – nightclub position where he plays piano that honestly looked nice to me i don't know they do it they do a classic 1940s thing where like maybe it's it's just that they can't show the the like actual gritty side of life or that they don't want to or something but like they like make a lot of references to how like it's like a flea bag place. Yeah, how flea mm-hmm. like they call it a flea bag place they like they make a reference in in fairness the one uh good characterization they do of that is that um like Sue makes a reference to the fact that uh, the clientele at this nightclub are handsy mm-hmm. and like maybe pretty rough, which is like that's a really good reason to get out. Uh, but like, like beyond that, uh, I didn't uh, like see filmically. I didn't get the impression that they were in a bad plot. It's spot. like a nice looking jazz club. And it's like, it's fine. like yeah. shit. I would yeah, I mean, have dinner like, there. You you're a talented piano player who's playing piano and you work with your girlfriend. She like, alludes to the great. She alludes to the fact that he could get into like a conservatory or something. Yeah, he can play like any type of music on the piano. He's and he amazing. does. He like improvs. It's like it's the kind of place that in any other noir you would see and be like, okay, we're, we're safe here. Like this is this is not where bad shit happens, right? Yeah. And and then we pan away from this and we see like worse spots. We see like um, uh, when he's all on the road and going to these diners and stuff, and you imagine bad things happening, but they don't set that place as a very like bad place to be. Visually. But anyway, suffice to say, he tries to propose to Sue. Sue says instead. No, it, there's like a, a pretty cool like crossroads moment, wh- right? Where she like identifies for herself, like like if that happens, if we get married, then this is it. Like this is our lives, and I want to try to do more than this. And then that inspires him to also try to do more, which it turns out is the worst decision he's ever made because then he goes on this road trip, yeah. and things go terribly wrong for him. There's the moment; it's the most peak him moment in the movie to me, where um, she you know says like he says his tearful goodbye. Because he realizes that he can't follow her when he, she would want, and she's like, it's, "You know, maybe later you'll you'll come and find me. Maybe like you'll be able to follow." But she's going to go on ahead without him, and they're parting. And she's like, "Aren't you even going to give me a kiss?" And he's like, "Yeah, why not?" Yeah, and then he <laughs> and does, and it's just like the, just the most the passionless yeah. smooch on it's the like, lips, right. and so it walks goes. away. This is a you contractual know, just, agreement it's, here. <laughs> it, like it's funny in retrospect, but it's like really. It's- yeah, the, the the levels of fatalism here reminded me a little bit of like Slaughterhouse Five or something, which is sure. funny because like that's also the structure of the plot. Which like maybe that's something to talk about is that this whole thing is a flashback, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, we we meet him for the first time when he's like really like on edge and like at the end of his rope in this diner and he's headed back from LA towards New York and he's thinking about how it all went wrong and he's listening to a song that used to be his favorite song it used to be his song with Sue I can't believe you're in love with me that's what it's called right I can't believe you love me that's the hook yeah Um, and that was what she sang in their nightclub it was like a best hit now he can't stand to listen to it and he freaks out when he hears it and he's thinking about how that happened and why and that's the sort of um, framing device through which we see this story unfold 
Um, I just remembered. This is—is is this going to be possible to explain on the podcast? There's a there's a web comic uh, called Perry Bible Fellowship that does all sorts of weird stylistic. Uh, uh, it's very very funny. And there's one that's like a black and white like film noir. Uh, and <laughs> I don't know if you, I showed this to you, Jason. I don't know if you remember this, but oh god, there's just like a little kid that runs up with a crayon. And he's like, "Hey, Mister, can you read what color this is?" And he sees it, and he starts crying and breaking down. And then the last panel is, is shows the crayon, and it just says uh, the color of her hair. <laughs> it's very fucking funny. It's pretty funny. <laughs> it's, it's, yes, it is basically how this character reacts to hearing that song. Yeah, exactly just, that. It like haunts it. it like travels around right. chasing after. Yeah, him. it defines him. Um, um, Cody, you and I talked about that plot framework yeah. a little bit and how it did and didn't work. Um, yeah. Do you want to speak to I, that? Yeah, I feel... I I didn't really dig it. Um, I It felt more like um, like we're talking about things being like contractually obligated. It felt like we were obli- obligated to jump back to this flop sweaty guy sitting in the dark at a diner, you know, every so often in the first half or so of this movie which, you know, is, you know, like the first half hour uh, <laughs> because it's a 69 minute movie. Nice. Um, nice. But, uh, you know, uh, the um, and like if there was more of a through line with, for example, like that song as a motif, like if that were looped through the movie in some way, I didn't really feel like there were, we had any strong ties or any strong reason to revisit the future where this movie is being projected from. Um, it just felt more of an annoyance uh, than anything else. Uh, and then Harry, I think you presented like an interesting alternative to where like. If sure. the like without that flashback, the movie becomes something different and maybe a little more unsettling. Yeah. I, so Jason and I talked about this a little bit, which is that like this movie, uh, because of perhaps its budget and maybe its its runtime or um, maybe like like um, sort of outside of the scope of the um, film itself, like. Um, realities of of what making it was like does not feel like a very conventional movie at mm-hmm. all uh in like it's it's 69 minutes long nice as we've been saying um it it takes some shortcuts that feel like they were necessary given the budget um i think for the record uh, according to the criterion release it was made on um, $117,226.80. I think it's hilarious that they included the cents, <laughs> cents. Um, which was $30,000 over budget. Um, it was shot in 18 days, which was more days than they thought they had to shoot. So it was coming in over budget. It was still shoestring, um, still like kind of like the indie movie of 1945. Um, that stuff that Jason and I talked about really, really works for me for this mm-hmm. movie. I think that the reason I like it as much as I do, and I think I like this movie pretty well, um, is that it doesn't have a necessarily conventional structure um, that you might expect from a noir mm-hmm. like this, and that made it somewhat unsettling for me. It, it actually made the themes of the movie, which is basically as stated at the end of the movie that your life could be stolen from, or not stolen, but like where, wherever you think your life is going, it could go somewhere completely different. You could have a detour <laughs> uh, at, at a moment's notice. Um, I think that that the uh, we talked about the the framework for flashback is like a capitulation to um, conventionality that I didn't like. Yeah, uh, it, I think like yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just to like riff on that. I. I don't think it bothered me as much that it is yeah. told in flashback just because I sort of expected that from the form, from the noir form. Exactly. It's not like they bring it back to it often enough that it's like, and then, you know, 
side up to me, buddy, at the bar. I'll tell you what happened next, and mm-hmm. then it pops back to the story. It, like it like keeps it in the background enough that it didn't right. distract me. It's it just like with uh, it's just like with narration, right? Where it's like I don't like maybe it's my contemporary sensibilities. Maybe it's sort of what I've been taught by pretentious art of film uh, like teachers or something. Sure, but like I think showing not telling is is like a good standard, I guess for. But like I also have to accept that that's just not what film noir is, and that's okay. Not at all. Yeah, and like like I like. I like some purple prose narration. I think mm-hmm. that it's overused here as it very frequently is. Um, and again, it's sort of a capitulation to needing to tell the story in a way that is parsable from a conventional story structure. Um, I think that, that if this movie had not been a f- flashback framing device and if it had, had instead followed a chronological order, it would have been like really disquieting in a mm-hmm. way that would have been like sort of like eerie almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I maybe would have liked that more, but that's backseat directing. I, I, I kind of like those conventional aspects, I guess. I, a thing that I found really um, nice about this film is it does, I think, fit pretty neatly into the film noir genre. Um, I think that maybe this is just my experiences, but I feel like especially people our age, uh, kind of like mid to late 20s, um, most of our experiences with neo-noir or things that have been influenced uh, from noir um, frankly, a lot of the noir that I was exposed to growing up was like parody, right? Like, yeah. like the Calvin Hobbes, uh, whatever his his noir uh, like imaginary character. Yeah, is, there's something right? about noir that makes it really ripe for parody. Maybe how earnest it is, but like even the Naked City, right? Like mm-hmm. Naked City was like 48, and even by then they were like really like taking noir to task. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know. There's something kind of. It's like putting on like a, a big heavy blanket where it's like, okay, this is a movie in black and white. There right. is this, this you know, not unconventional, but there is this flashback narrative structure. There's there's these all these tropes that I'm familiar with. Some of them are maybe a little yeah. more shitty than others, yeah. but it, it is kind of It's comforting. a comfortable key. Sure, yeah. Exactly. It gives I you something to like to orient yourself in the movie with, right? I think it plays in it well, too, yeah. right? Like I think that, that the gender politics and class politics of this movie are actually interesting. Um, because they almost go a little bit uh, – they don't go against form. We should probably start talking about Vera if no, we're going to talk about they, that. I mean they work in the form really well, but uh-huh. that's because yeah. the, the form itself is well constructed to talk mm-hmm. about those things often. Right. Uh, imperfectly, obviously, um, and it doesn't have a lot of answers. That's kind of the point is that, that noir is like the lack of answers. It's sort of the um, the like – bemoaning of the lack of clear answers, right? Or, mm-hmm. like, maybe the... the moral um, yeah. ambiguity. Mm-hmm. I but, wasn't convinced uh, that, like, this movie worked as an entry in the, like, saga of classic noir until Vera came along. Um, like, the yeah. like the flashback and uh, voiceover narration juxtaposed with um, Tom Neal's sad sack face just, like, wasn't really doing it. Um, but then, like, you get... And Savage's Vera in this car, and you start to see things like the editing kind of work alongside the narration a little bit better. We just have, like, for example, like extended periods where we're looking at Vera's profile, and uh, Al Roberts is droning on about something uh, about her specifically. And then when you, I don't know, when you're, you're kind of getting used to what you're seeing, uh, Vera turns and faces you uh, with these bright, white ass eyes. Uh, and that's like. She seems capable of never blinking it's yeah it's, it's crazy there are a whole like yeah. 30 second cuts where she just unflinchingly stares at his she face. looks fucking amazing on camera i like i'm not like not 
I'm not even talking about like beautiful. I just mean like like literally. She looks unhinged. She's very emotive and expressive. That's like really really well. I, it's stayed. the edge that this movie needs. Yeah, to, yeah. Like, the whole movie comes through. to life when she enters. Totally. I think you're totally right. And that's what 21, 22 minutes it's into more, the movie. Maybe it's considerably it even more than that. Is because even she has that? the whole interaction with uh, Haskell first. Oh yeah, that's right. So I it's like literally it's... like forty minutes into this ninety minute or uh, sixty minute movie, sixty nine mm-hmm. nice minute movie. Um. And which is maybe a problem for it, but also, like I said, kind of works for it. You mm. know, well, it, from there, like that's where chemistry is a weird word to use here. Oh, but, I think they have great chemistry. They're because... like the the evil Nick and Nora. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, we sh- should we talk about Vera? Yeah, she's, she's, she's like a. Uh, well, we, should, we should talk about Vera, like uh, what what the actress does with the character and like how she's used in the story. Like the only thing that she really has to play off of is. Al Roberts, uh, and it, it's perfect because he is just still like the flat step on me, yeah. uh, you know, sad sack boy. Which, which is, you know, bo- both of those characters are kind of playing the typical parts that they would in noir. Like a, a, a classic trope in noir is the femme the fatale. guy. Well, yeah, the the, the femme fatale that, that is able to step in and kind of, you know, uh, again, it's a misogynistic trope, but to kind of take control of this man kind of um, – well, and she Make she also him do whatever she wants. She forces right? the detour, right? Like, yeah. like the femme fatale is always an element of um, chaos that, that yeah. throws things out of. And and she she is sort of affecting that even before she's on screen, even before she's introduced as a character, really, because uh, Charles, the actual Charles, talks about how he was uh, scratched by a woman that he picked up who rejected his advances, right? And she he threw her out on her ear. Is that what he said. why? I don't know if that's explicitly that? characterized as I, why. I, I think it is, yeah. Oh, I really? He, I didn't. Yeah. I missed that. Me too. He definitely has a few lines that hint that he was something not went awry very after well. she was. Yes. Yeah, something went awry. I mean, it makes sense. He was an asshole. He was an asshole. Uh, she scratched him, left a couple of scratches on his arm and uh, or his, on his hand, and he tossed her out. And then later, and that sort of like sets a little bit of the tone of who Charles is and who this other character might be. You don't really think about that character coming back into the story until we meet Vera yeah. later on. And, and, and also then, that like carries through because she is very much like that, uh, you know, uh, viper type like on where he's off. Yeah, all yeah. the time. So in the in the fiction, uh, we explain this a little bit, but Vera is this like twenty four year old sort of opportunistic drifter, a bit of a a bit of a grifter too, right? Like she's she doesn't have any money. She's looking for ways to make money. Mm-hmm. She's on her own. She's like very much like a um, like survivor. You know, um, and uh, she, like uh, Jason said, had been riding with Haskell, so she recognizes Al Roberts, even though Al Roberts has assumed the identity of Haskell. Because and, he's still in right, Haskell's car. And begins to blackmail him, um, and that sets up the events of the rest of the movie, like Aaron said in his summary. Yeah. Um, she's uh, she's really fascinating because she's kind of where the movies, uh, in my opinion, like class politics come from too. She like sort of makes explicit that class through line where like Haskell was a wealthy guy. Uh, Roberts isn't, but he's more privileged than she is. But she at one point says that they came from the same gutter. Um, sorry, go ahead. I... No, I was going to say, yeah, she, you know, again, there are a lot of kind of misogynistic tropes that, that are often – seen in noir, uh, but I think it is interesting how often uh, female characters within those structures are often kind of 
grow greater than those structures, right? And yeah. I think her character is a perfect example yeah. of one that I think just taken – I guess I wouldn't blame anybody for not liking some of the, the gender politics in this movie. But I think her character is is so well done. A lot of that's her performance. A lot of that is, is the role she's given in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, like it plays a little bit at times, not exactly with the structure, but like in – when male characters are talking about female characters in noir, a lot of like the dichotomy is like, do I want to make her my wife or do I want to kill her sort of thing? Like that's that's the the two buckets that women are often thrown into in like male driven. They lampshade that in this movie. Yeah, a couple of times. Uh, and every time that he tries to do that, such as he can, it backfires uh, explosively where she like immediately takes control of the situation again, sort of makes it. Like continues the story, continues the plot, finds some new way to make money. They're going to – he was going to ditch the car. She says, no, we got to go sell the car. Uh, I mean she's the driving agency behind this movie Yeah, from the moment she enters it to the moment she's murdered. Uh, spoilers, I guess. Um, that's how the movie ends. Um, she and uh, uh, Al have a, a terrible falling out. She's going to call the police once and for all because that – okay, so what happens – sorry, I'm doubling back on myself. What happens is that – uh, Haskell Sr. is looking for his estranged son, Haskell Jr. Sr.'s on his deathbed. He's dying. He wants to give a bunch of money to his son before he passes. Um, the way that Vera figures it, Al has already assumed the identity of Haskell Jr. They've been making a go of it so far. She thinks that they have this opportunity to make all of this money. Her worries will be over. She has a pretty heartbreaking little understated monologue where she says that you'll never have to worry about where your next meal is coming from. You'll never have to worry about paying rent again. She's talking to him. She's clearly talking about herself. It's a really good understated little bit about her character. Um, he refuses to do it because he doesn't think he can. And more importantly to, like, the this, this sort of reading of this movie, it's just not his plan. Like, he, he just has this this in, entitlement about what he wants and what he thinks he's going to be doing. Um, he has to get to sue. All of this is sort of weirdly, like, a detour, right? Like, it's kind of beneath him. It's uh-huh. like, a, it's like a, road, a speed bump on the way toward his dream. Um, I'm <laughs> editorializing my point. Uh, but... Um, so they have this big falling out. She's going to call the police on him to make good on her blackmail promise. She is very drunk, and she goes into the room, uh, or she locks him out of her room. She falls on the bed, like sort of grappling with the phone cord, somehow gets it wrapped around her neck. He starts pulling on the cord from the other room to try to snatch it away from her and strangles her with the phone cord. Un- unknowingly, yes. Yeah. Right. I, unknowingly, right. Yeah. Uh, but but it's like, it's it's extremely contrived um, and and pretty dumb, but also like the, con- the, the contrivance of it is sort of part of the point because like that's yeah. also what happened to Haskell is Haskell was dying of tuberculosis, I think, right? And then like, like he passes out um, and like Roberts tries to get him out of the car, and as he falls out of the car, he hits his. He like dashes his head on a rock. So like it's another contrived like it's it's like there's an evil god who's Some like final conspiring. Yeah, who's shit. conspiring against Roberts, and that's how Roberts feels about it himself. He's mm. like, how can this keep happening to me? <laughs> um, and so that's the idea of it. And and Roberts just like has to leave. He just has to leave the body behind. Um, how did you all feel about that? I'm talking too much. I'm sorry. I mean, it clearly was like uh, we were checking as we were going the um, timestamps for where we were in the movie, and we saw that there were like six minutes left after she introduced this plot to go impersonate Charles Haskell Jr. Senior's son. 
It was like, how the hell do they, how do they tie this up? Yeah, because in a normal film, there would be that plot. Well, right? that's like, the that would be the third, third act. Exactly. Yes. Like, um, and there's a whole, they, they, they foreshadow it a lot with the whole, um, like, the scar on his arm thing. And Harry was even like, no, but the scar on his arm, that's what's going to give him away. And then they address that in, like, uh, mm-hmm. in Al's He just remembers it. it. Yeah. yeah, he's just like, besides, I don't have the scar on my arm that he does. And she's like, so like a, what? It was like a Jordan Peele thing where he was just like, oh, like, in every other movie, the character would be too dumb to remember the scar, so I'm just going to write it. Yeah. I, uh, I, I mean, I'm okay with it. It, it did end. Oh, in, it did end in a way that was like, yeah. I, I, I don't know if it had ended with another 30 minute act about that yeah. whole plot turning out. I would not have been like surprised. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that 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 forcible departure from the norm and the expectation, uh, the detour, if you will, from the the contrivances of a standard plot, is like the thematic point of this movie and also they did it formally right? right which is amazing like that's really cool it I mean, totally works for me it's what I'm going to remember about the movie right is yeah. that it ends and at that, the end of the second that act that had to be the, the sort of like the, the trick of this movie right is like that's kind of what they were going for or maybe they produced it sort of accidentally by by nature of the fact that it was a low budget film either way it worked really well for me yeah it's it's like a fascinating it's fascinating provenance to the like making of the movie right is like are you even the end, very end of the movie, like the last shot of the movie, is uh, Robert's walking away, having like presumably, uh, well, he he assumes that he has no identity because uh, Al Roberts is considered dead because he is now, um, well, why, why did I miss why Al Roberts had had to die? Like why the identity of Al Roberts? I was had wondering to die? about that. He's been missing for so long at a certain point. Maybe I guess he I don't know. threw it away so that he would evade suspicion as a drifter or something. Anyway, but and Charles Haskell's also dead, the man that he was impersonating. So now he's like a man without an identity, a man without a face, a man with only his future ahead of him. And then at the very end of the movie, he's like escorted into a police car yeah. off the side of the. And even highway. before that, I really love he characterizes. He's like, I can't go back to New York. I can never go back to L.A. And, like, to Gotta him... Gotta live in the Midwest. Yeah, oh, in, fuck. In his mind, it's like, those are the only two places. And so he's, like, doomed to, like, walk the earth <laughs> in this, like, purgatorial state. And it's like, damn, yeah, dude. I hear Des Moines is nice this time of year. You ever seen a noir <laughs> film set in Madison, Wisconsin? No, you fucking haven't, bro. <laughs> I mean, I've seen Fargo. Oh. <laughs> Got him. Uh, hey, maybe that's a good recommendation. Neo-noir, uh, anyway. sir. We've reached half the length of the running time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean... Movie. There are a couple of there are a couple of really good like readings that I like about this movie. Um, I think conventionally or maybe um, class politics wise, this is like the it's it's making the same point as Parasite in a really fun way, mm. uh, where it, where it's like it doesn't like without without material security you can't make a plan <laughs> for your life because the world can just fuck you and you don't have any sort of recourse to recover for that. So in fact, like your plans are all illusions because like without the the way to like back them up materially you don't have any sort of uh you don't have a safety net yeah and um uh deconstructively um there's a cool reading here too where you start to um deconstruct or critique al roberts himself as as a really like messed up shitty dude Mm -hmm. um because he is uh he's a solipsist he's incredibly self-centered uh every time something happens to him his first uh opinion about it is is how it's affecting him and he can't believe that this is happening to him this is a dude who inadvertently kills two people and the first thing he thinks after he strangles to death a 24 year old woman 
whom he had just had a relationship with is, God, it sucks that this is happening to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> the reason he's able to do that is because he has a terrible, massive entitlement complex about his life. He thinks that he deserves to be with Sue. Mm-hmm. He thinks he deserves to have this plan come to fruition. That's an incredibly masculine trait for somebody to have. He like really feels entitled to the life that he's going to lead because he's doing it. He's like, I'm a great piano player. Sue's going to make it big. He's dreaming about Sue making it big the whole time. And, and he's thinking to himself that that's going to be his life. And damn it, he's going to make it happen by whatever means necessary. This movie is in part about what happens when you think that way about yourself and what it makes you capable of. Um, a lot of movies are also about that, but that's an interesting way to read this movie also. Um, just like, what a self-pitying fucking sad sack piece of shit that guy is. <laughs> Okay, Cody's blowing his nose. Um, this is the segment of our show, and Cody blows his nose. But but and then and then like uh, oh yeah, I should probably wait for Cody to finish blowing his nose. Sorry, that's Cody. the segment no, of the no, show where Cody blows his nose. <gasps> Cody's blowies. Oh shit! I gotta get some noties. Do you have any noties, Cody's? I took so few notes during this movie. How did you have time? The movie's over in a blink. Yeah. Um, between blowing my nose and the fact that this is twelve minutes long, <laughs> and then finally, like like between the sort of class politics and the and the um, faux gender politic deconstructive reading of Al Roberts, there's like the the typical noir about like fate and life, and about like the the like really dark pessimism of um, film noir. That's that's so typical, like you said, Aaron. Like I think the reason why this is such a typical noir film is because it has such a typical stance about our agencies within our own lives mm-hmm. and about the sort of like the course of human history and identity as being something that is fundamentally out of our hands and something that uh, we are sort of doomed by. Um, Cody, you and I noticed one of my favorite motifs about this movie is everybody's dying of something. Haskell Jr. is dying of tuberculosis. It's highly implied that Vera is also yeah. dying of the same illness. She keeps coughing and mm-hmm. people remark on it and it's not. Yeah. At yeah. one point she says like she has like a whole like like the Buddha poisoned king uh, thing where, where she's like, oh, like maybe uh, maybe if we get caught, they'll hang me too. But I'm already on my way and they'd just be speeding it up. Yep. And it's like you get the feeling she's talking about an illness, but also like she could just be that person. She could literally just believe that about her life, which is like that's like a that's like a sick, dark thing to think. Mm-hmm. And also completely like Very in noir. line with noir, yeah. She's right. She's she, technically she's right. she's not wrong. All dying. She's not wrong. I will find a way around it, but but you guys, peasants, will unfortunately perish. You're on your way, baby. No. Yeah, Jim Guy, twenty twenty over here. Kind of a depressing movie. Shit, fellas, I don't know. I liked it a lot. Yeah. Um, I think that the, you're just you're not. Jason has decided I've he's run not out of saying things. anything I've else. Run out of to things say. to think and say about it's about a fucking like short it's, film, fellas. It, it is <laughs> like it, it's yeah. what makes it special to me is is that like is that form is that uh like the structure of the film how it literally ends at the second at the end of the second act yeah i i will say i'm i'm usually fine with leaving a movie you know as the text uh but i am kind of interested in peeling back the curtain on this one i would like to know in the novel that this is uh an adaption of if there's a third act right like i could definitely see so so this was a film it was uh released by the producers releasing corporation which was a poverty row film studio which was uh like 30s and 40s it was like basically a string of like b-movie 
uh, film studios. So, you know, this movie was very under budget. Uh, well, it was over budget, but it was didn't have much of a budget. Um, shoestring. The, yeah, shoestring, shoestring budget. I think that, that wasn't the actual term for it, the Poverty Row Hollywood movies. Yeah, po- Poverty Row was what it was called. It was not, a, it was not an official term, but that's kind of the mm-hmm. name that they were Industry given. Industry term. Um, so I don't know. I would like to know, I guess, if there is more to the book, how much of the, the kind of unsettling feeling of just having a weird kind of two-act movie was maybe intentional. Maybe it was some sort of production issue. I guess I don't know. I'd be interested in yeah, I just like, more about it. I think, but I think it works as is. I, uh, I love the hitchhiker construction, right? Like, mm-hmm. it always works for me. I think that I love uh, assumed identity stories, too. I, I try, We tried. We put our heads together to try to come up with other examples of it. There's, like, North by Northwest. Um, there's kind of Mulholland Drive. Uh, they're, That's the thing. A lot of them are more maybe symbolic than yeah, literal. Yeah, they're, like, slant. Yeah, persona. Uh, there's Absolved identity <laughs> plots, you mean? Or uh, I meant specifically assumed identity, like the, a person okay, dies, identity. somebody else gotcha. takes over their identity. Yeah. Uh, Assassin's Creed Four Black Flag yeah. opens with one of those um, video games. We'll you know take a shot or whatever. Um, <laughs> it's gonna be a recommendation for later. Assassin's Creed. No, 4. that game's game not very good. Yeah, people say it's good. It's not uh, very good. It was maybe good when it came out. Uh, it's not good anymore. No, no. I don't think it. I suspect it wasn't even good when no, it came it out. Um, the sea shanties are great. Yeah, are they? Yeah, are they? Have you ever have you listened to them? Yeah, they're fantastic. Yeah, they're they're fine. It's like a really they're good nice, part yeah. of that game because it yeah. it actually like speaks to the working class origin of piracy. I want to get into and this more. I think Jason will strangle they, me. No, like both they, of us do they do they play these on ships? Like yeah, your, your yeah. Ship, you your can go crew. around collecting. You collect them yeah. and then your you collect your crew shanties, like sings songs. Them. Yeah. yeah, and your wow. crew sings them and they recorded them and it's great. It's That's cool, incredible. but I feel like a lot of people. Jesus, what are we talking about? I feel like a lot of people played it and were just like, I'm going around with my crew in this video game, singing shit. Right. I was it's, like, I don't need easy. to. I'm it's, just trying to get over there. It's, it's probably easy to see it as like, oh, this is the soundtrack to my like, I, I think that's travails, fine. which is fine. But like, if you're not looking further at like what that's saying about your your like the structure of the game and, and your place, yeah. and I haven't played this game. We've really taken like a detour. Nice. Wow. <laughs> hey, wow. got him. And that means it's time to end the episode. Uh, we need it, to do recommendations yeah. and things uh, of my, that nature. Recommendations. I did come across a noti. I don't know if that comes. First. One noti. I think that means it's time for Cody's noties. Yo. Just say it. Deep voice. Uh, it. Uh. I uh, was very afraid. Um, I was uh, pretty detached from the screening for reasons uh, largely due to my illness. Uh, I quite like this movie as well. Um, This is relevant because Aaron uh, mentioned The Thin Man at one point. Uh, I was the only one here to see this movie. Uh, Tom Neal actually makes an appearance in the Thin Man franchise. The uh, third entry, titled Another Thin Man, uh, involves Nick and Nora... Uh, touching base with the uh, what Wikipedia calls the administrator of uh, her fortune, um, Colonel Burr McFay. Uh, the, he's an old man who's receiving death threats because he's rich, uh, and Nick and Nora obviously play into that because uh, it's their franchise. Uh, and, and another they, thin man. <laughs> yeah, they uh, they walk away from the interaction just fully bummed out. <laughs> yeah, they they're Get wearing a load that, of that sad guy. sack look on their faces. Uh, uh, Tom Neal plays Colonel McFay's secretary, uh, and by the end, he's like a suspect. Hmm. So that's, uh, yeah. As I understand, uh, Anne Savage, who plays uh, Vera in, in this movie, doesn't have like, way too many other notable no. credits. No, this is some the other thing work that she's Gilmore, most famously known for. Excellent. Uh, which is weird because, like Harry said, she's she pops on screen. She like yeah. she is a very good contrast to. Any... She's the best part of this movie, 
like straight up. Yeah, we easily. should we should say straight up. Get like the reason that it kept me interested after that like 30, 40 minutes. I guess I had just compressed the time before she arrived to the screen because it felt like it was only like twenty minutes in that she finally hit. Um, yeah, uh, my recommendation for this movie after watching this movie is um, The Hitchhiker. Uh, I forget when that was released, uh, but it was by Ida. You can do it. I can do it. You got it. I can do it. Someone stall. Someone the Hitchhiker stall. by Ida Lupino. Um, 1953. Is it uh, a movie? What is it? It is a, it is a film. Uh, another shortish film, 71 minutes, um, about two uh, friends out on a road trip, uh, grown men who pick up a, a hitchhiker, lone hitchhiker, who ends up being a, a serial killer on the run for the on, on the lamb. Um, and he, uh, th- the whole movie is about them uh, and their like class kind of clashing with his class. He comes from a very like not like a very poor community, very poor home, very like poor upbringing, and they're both uh, like upper middle class white guys who are uh, very well to do. And he just forces them to drive him to his destination and beyond. Uh, it's good, and it's another quickie. So nice. Um, I've got a few. Uh, I'm going to list them off in order of decreasing relevance to the movie that we discussed here today. Uh, the most relevant is probably My Man Godfrey, speaking of William Powell. Um, uh, it's William Powell and Carol Lombard, among others. Uh, but William Powell it plays a... Uh, um, uh, he's a homeless man who gets brought on to be uh, a servant through uh, various circumstances in this uh, wealthy family's... Uh, you know, he's a servant in their home, and there's more to him than meets the eye. And that's, I won't go into too much detail about it, but it's a great movie. Very normal. Um, face Off, uh, coming to the trial on. Uh, <laughs> literal uh, swapping of identities uh, of faces. That is part of the John Woo uh, directed movie theme that is going on throughout the month of February. Uh, you should go uh, check it out, support the trial on, shout out to the trial on. Uh, and then the final movie I'll recommend, I, I, you know, I can't talk about Face Off without bringing up the classic film The Parent Trap where two twins uh, separated at birth uh, swap identities what are we to, doing? Okay, okay, <laughs> okay, what are we doing? okay, take me down this road no, that's, that's it that's, they, they oh, that was the end of the road, huh? I don't know, Parent it's, Trap is fun That's like a swap though, right? That's not like yeah, an assumed Yeah, it's another slant example It's not an, a pure example of an assumed identity narrative I never said it was I Whoa, hey, hey, fellas Dismissing your recommendation I don't I know if there's too much overlap between liking Detour and liking the Parent Trap I gotta push back a little bit We're at 40 minutes and 45 seconds Aaron, do you have any movies or media that you'd like to recommend? Yeah, um, Dumb Indemnity, uh, 1944, one year prior. We, I, well, at least I did. I saw that with some people, but about a year ago, that played at the Heights, so similar environment. I did see that with you. Yes, that yeah, was good. Did. The Heights, fine, it's fine a fun theater. theater. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's no trial. It is a trial. I mean, it is a trial, but it's no trial, right? Um, I like I love that. The Heights. Uh, I would definitely check out the, 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 the the comic I mentioned earlier, earlier uh, Perry Bible Fellowship, the name of that strip, you can just Google it, uh, is Carolyn, C-A-R-O-L-Y-N. Uh, it is a very funny comic strip. Um, Harry was harassing me to mention Lost Highway. so I'll, I was going to mention Lost Highway. All right, I'll mention Lost Highway. It's it's kind of neo-noiry. Uh, I think that there, it's definitely possible that Lynch took something from this film. For Form, it. Formally, it represents a, a radical break from conventionality. That is actually... Not a swap. That is an assumed identity movie. Well, I'm I'm talking about like in terms of the structure. The structure too. The structure is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like this movie, it represents a break from 
like uh, yeah. conventional storytelling in a way that gets you to think about that. Yes. Um, yeah, I guess I've got a few. Um, there's a hitchhiking episode of The Twilight Zone that's really good. Um, obviously, this is a black and white movie from the 40s. Makes me think of The Twilight Zone. Um, in, in terms of radical breaks from conventionality, um, the horror movie Carnival of Souls, I can't remember exactly when it's from. Um, that's a that's a radical movie. It's like fifty five. Uh, yeah, deeply deeply unsettling in terms of uh, what it does to you. Um, so I'm I'm really into that movie and recommend it. Um, we brought up the man who wasn't there, which we did a podcast episode about the Coen Brothers movie, also about fatalism. Um, so I actually do go watch that and then listen to our episode. Yeah, get those numbers up. Get these ad deals going. It's a good movie. I recommend that one pretty highly. Uh, Kiss Me Deadly doesn't have a lot to do with. Uh, um, this movie, except that it's also a noir. It's also um, pretty fatalistic. Uh, that movie's much meaner. It has another killer song in it, Nat King Cole's I'd Rather Have the Blues, which I listen to all the time because Ooh. it's an incredible song. Uh, that's a that's a really wild, great movie that, that is deeply angry about noir in general and, and detectives, um, which is great. Um, and then I made a list of tropes that you might like, uh, or, you know, I, I didn't do enough research to figure out really good recommendations, but like, this is an assumed identity movie. It's a one night movie, like a one night long, see how fast your fortunes can change movie. I really like those. Um, hitchhiking, uh, jazz as motifs, and then sort of radical breaks from conventional story structure, which, you know, that's cool. Um, do we, do we have any other recommendations? I don't think that's it, man. You could, yeah. If if you're just listening to this, go Are we doing do check Ar- out Detour. Arnold Schwarzenegger lines. Oh. Is oh, it kind of is it kind of gross to to do that about when he strangles Vera? <laughs> yeah, I think probably. Yeah, you're it's right. like yeah. an ironic. Yeah, we should definitely do the first one, which is infinitely more funny. So the first one, sure. let's set it up. Uh, Charles is sleeping in the passenger seat, and uh, it starts raining. And Al says, "Hey, Charles, let's put the top up." And Charles is not responsive. Puts the top up, opens the door, Charles falls out, dashes his head against a rock, and presumably dies. Presumably. And Al sa- and Arnold Schwarzenegger says, I can, I can compress time I wasn't, I here. I wasn't planning on this one, so I have to think about it. I, had, I wasn't either. Uh, I, I could think of something. Rock and roll, baby. I'm just getting us started. Hey. Yeah, so, do, it it in the vo- start. do it in the fucking voice. Rock, I can't do. Do it in the voice. Do it in the, do I can't it in the do voice. It. You don't get to mention this something is you don't the do voice. it in the fucking voice. Pretend this is the voice. This is such bullshit. Rock and roll. Rock and roll, baby. There you yeah, go. Yeah. See? Isn't that more fun? Um, than making me do it? You're in between a rock and a hard place. Mm. Mm. That's that's it. <laughs> do you have one? Seems he was a little stoned. Oh. Uh, last taking pills. trip. Unless you're good. None of those are any good. Sorry, guys. That's what I call. A, that's what I call a suicide door. Phone's <laughs> not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Top down, topped out. No, that's. I was gonna top off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> End of the road. Yeah. That. Yeah. I was gonna do a road. Okay. One. So we're, we're playing into a larger scenario. Okay. I okay. guess. We, well, I guess the next shift is gonna be mine too. Like driving shift. You yeah. Know? This is your stop. You just edit this as like a fade out as we're just talking. I already this. have. Yeah. Uh, this is the this has been the Try Love podcast. Um, you can find us at Try Love Podcast. Um, I guess I'm Harry. Uh, you can find me at Stocky Harry. We're going reverse now. Uh, my name is Aaron. You can find me at RB Please. I'm Cody. You can find me at Cody underscore BH. Jason at Nintendo. This. Shut up. You're making noises like a husband. 